Well, good morning. morning. Have you greeted everybody? Have you met the exciting people? <laughs> Some of them. Not all of them. Well, good. It's, uh, it is a good morning to be here. Good morning to you. Good. Well, Chris responded at least, so I know he's with me. Uh, let me, let me, good morning. Let me start with a story, uh, which is a good way to do it. I, a couple weeks ago, had the opportunity of chaperoning my seven-year-old son's trip to the Minnesota Zoo. I know. Uh, it was something. So I show up at school and get my assigned kids from the teacher. It is my son and one other child. <laughs> I know. We'll call him Johnny. Uh, I... I was expecting some a different experience, I guess, uh, but there were a number of, this was what all the parents had. I thought I was a special parent at that point, but turned out this was what all the parents, just two or three, and the teacher had like five, um, but there, we just had a couple, and so we, we ride the, the school bus down to the Minnesota Zoo, which I have memories of school buses from when I was that age and that size, and they seemed a lot more spacious at that point. Um, I, yeah, uh, so we get down there, and I have my son and Johnny, and the rules are that as long as you stay together as a group, you can go anywhere, see whatever you want, it's up to you as a group, and you can go with other groups if you like, but you have to stay together as a group. So I'm in coolest leader, coolest chaperone ever mode with them. <laughs> So I'm like, whatever you guys want to do, we're, we're going to do it. You guys, you guys make the decision. And seven-year-olds, when given the opportunity to make a decision about what they're going to do, they don't make one. Uh, so they just decided that they would stay together and they want to do that. So we, we did, have anybody been to the Minnesota Zoo before? So, all right, a few of you. So there's like an indoor area and an outdoor area, and it was very windy on the day we were there. So we, st- we figured we'll do the outdoor in the afternoon when it's a little bit warmer. So we started indoors, so the three of us are working our way through the trails on the inside, and like seven-year-old boys, they looked at each animal for about 5.7 seconds, and then they were on to the next one. So we're, we're doing all right, we're making our way through, and they're looking at things, but you know they're just walking and having a decent time. So we get through the indoor stuff, we have lunch, uh, we decide to go to the outdoor stuff. We, we go to see the grizzly bears, because they really wanted to see the grizzly bears. So we go to see the bears, and then we're starting to walk out toward uh, where the farm is, because in the spring they have the baby animals, and, and I thought... You know, this is cool, they can pet the baby animals, all this stuff. So we're walking the trail out there. Johnny, who is not my son, Johnny, he's still got a fair amount of energy. He's walking up ahead of us a little bit on the path. He's kind of excited to get out there. He wants to see the baby animals. My son, on the other hand, is developed a bad symptom of whining at this point. Like, my feet hurt. He's not in here, so I can do this. He won't be traumatized and need counseling later. Uh, I'm tired. I want to sit down. He's just not having any of it. I'm like, come on, we'll just make it there. There's a place where we can play when we get out there. To, to, we can take a tractor out the rest of the way to the farm if we get there. And so finally we get to the place where the tractor is going to pick us up. And they have this indoor play area, so they have fun and they start playing on that. In the meantime, 
these two other groups of seven-year-old boys from the same class show up. Uh, five of them, one parent who's extra responsible, she got three. Uh, so, and they are all friends, and they've decided now that they met together that they want to stay together. So we've gone from two to seven, seven-year-old boys. The dynamics changed incredibly. When it was just two of them, I did not lose either of them at any point for any length of time. When there were seven of them, Johnny, inexplicably, right when I was having a conversation with the teacher, suddenly disappears. So as I'm talking to the teacher, Johnny's gone, and I'm like, oh, great, where did Johnny go? Right in front of the teacher, too. This is fantastic. This is why I only have two. Uh, <laughs> we found him. He was just, like, around a corner. So he, he was just really excited, and, and with other kids, that extra energy. So it's me and the other moms. And we're heading back. <laughs> and, and, and we start to head back, and we're going to go wait for the tractor. Well, the boys are just, they're all over the place. And, and we're like, all right, we'll just we'll walk back because they seem to have extra energy. My son, who previously was dragging himself along and wanting to sit down and having nothing to do with the walk, suddenly starts sprinting. Not for just a little way. These seven boys sprinted from the farm all the way back to the grizzly bears in bursts because they had to wait for you know me and the other moms to catch up to them occasionally. But they went from dragging to sprinting in these bursts. Go, go, go. And all of them, just, they didn't know what to do with themselves. They had so much. And they, they were walking past the camels and the Asian horses, I think that's what they're called. And, you know, these exotic animals that you don't see anywhere. And there's a tiki hut where in the summer they serve beverages. The boys are climbing into the tiki hut rather than looking at the... It's like, it's just an empty thatched roof thing, boys. Like, it's not that... But they were just, there's so much energy. The difference between seven and two is incredible. The influence that they had on each other, the way their energy exploded when they were around each other was profound. And this is what we're going to talk about leadership today. And some of what leadership is, is influence and the influence we have on other people. So that's, that's my weak tie-in to be able to tell that story into our sermon, uh, is that being around other people has influence on us and leadership is influence. So we're going we're gonna to dive into that. Let me pray and then we'll... We'll start going, Lord, we thank you for this time together. I thank you for seven-year-old boys. Uh, Lord, we pray that this morning we would be able to, uh, to dive into your word and understand it as, as you shared it. Lord, help us to connect with, uh, with your heart and your soul that, that resonates from these words in your name. Amen. All right. Well, we're talking about leadership, and in our culture, there is, we have a leadership-obsessed culture. Just, I, I, we have a lot of books written about leadership. I just went to Amazon just to get some, some numbers, and I just typed in leadership as an Amazon search. And Amazon has 60,530 books that have leadership as part of the substance of them. 60,000 books. Comparatively, parenting. Parenting is an important thing, right? There were 55,000 
511 books on parenting. So 60,000 books on leadership, 55,000 on parenting, a couple other things. Fishing, 34,000 on fishing. Baseball, I thought there'd be more than this. 26,000 titles on baseball. Money, 79,000 titles on (laughs) money. So leadership ranks up there right above parenting and right below money. So it's, it's important. Uh, we, have, we have this obsession with leadership within our culture. And the reason I think that it's important that we talk about it within this context, within us as a church community uh, talking about it, is that I have this feeling and I have this sense as I look to the scriptures and what the Bible says about how to lead and what leading means and what following means the scripture relays a different message about what leadership is than the culture that we're in. Then the, the common understanding we have is as we go around our daily lives. I think that they're different than each other. So I think it's important for us as a church community, of, of, as people of the word, to look to the word and see what it says about leadership. Uh, we are going to need the, uh, the talk sheets in your, in your bulletins, our talk sheets. Everyone is going to need one of those later in the service. We're going to have, I know that some people, you know, you grab one packet for your family or whatever. So Brian and some of the ushers, they're going to hand out extra bulletins. Yep, right now. Uh, extra, or not extra bulletins, but extra talk sheets and pens if you need them because you want to write down. You don't have to take notes on everything, but we're going to do a little activity at the end. So I'm not forcing you to take notes. This is for an activity at the end. But if you don't have a talk sheet, if you want to stick up a hand, and we have a few folks wandering around, so give a chance for people to dig, uh, dig pens out as well. So if you need a pen or a bulletin, stick up your hand. They'll get you one of those. While they're doing that, if you want to turn to Luke 10, if you have a Bible, uh, that's where we're going to be reading from. And we're going to be reading a very familiar story that, yeah, keep your hands up, they're, they're working their way around. Uh, they'll, they'll get to you. I'm going to start rolling and, and you'll, you, won't, you won't miss something to fill out quite yet. But Luke 10 is, uh, is where we're at and we're going to look at this story that you're probably familiar with. So let me start, let me read the story and then we'll come back and start uh, looking at some of the aspects of it. Luke 10 verse 25 is where I'm at. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He, Jesus, replied, how do you read it? He answered, the expert, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he, the expert, wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place, and saw him passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to the man, to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. 
Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three men, or which of these three do you think was the neighbor of the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now this is a familiar story for many of us. We've heard it in a lot of different contexts. And this story, like so many of other of Jesus' stories, are brilliant because there is so much mining we could do on this story. There is so much in this. We could do literally sermon after sermon on just this text and take away different things and mine different areas and find different uh, subplots and themes that Jesus was getting to within the story because there's an incredible amount of depth to it. But what I want to do... Uh, this morning is focus on the Levite and the priest and dig into a little bit of what's going on there in that context. All right? But first, before we do that, before we jump to the story, I want to look a little bit at the dialogue that introduces this story. We have this expert in the law that's coming to Jesus and asking him this question. Now, he says he's out to test Jesus. Now, when we read this, we're not given the man's motivation behind wanting to test Jesus, I think a lot of us assume, and there, this may, may be a valid assumption, that he's sinister in this wanting to test Jesus. We, uh, we might have this mental image of, of Boris Bodnoff. Remember, remember Rocky and Bullwinkle? Uh, you know, the, the thin little mustache and the thin goatee rubbing his bony fingers together. Like, this is the image we, I will get him. You know, this is the image we have of, of this, this expert wanting to test Jesus, that he is up to no good in this. That might be the case. There were a number of people, experts in the law, who were out to catch Jesus, to trap him, to trick him, to test him in a negative way. It may have been the case that he was trying to figure out if Jesus' teaching was legitimate and test him to find out if he was worth following. So we're not given his motivation for putting Jesus to the test, but, but that's what he's doing. He's trying to understand Jesus. He's either trying to trap him or better understand him. We're not given his motivation. There isn't an, an explicit uh, explanation of it there. We don't know that, but what Jesus is able to do in that conversation that he has with him is he's not able, he doesn't reveal the motivation for asking the question, but he does get to the man's motivation behind the way that he lives his life. Because we have this exchange. He asks a question, Jesus responds with a question. The man gives an answer, but then follows it up with a question. And in that last question, question, he reveals, or Luke here reveals his motivation, that he wanted to justify himself for the way that he lived. I added the way that he lived, but he said that he wanted to justify himself. There's a justification that he has about who his neighbor is and how he lives his life according to that understanding. Because he said that to have eternal life is to love God and to love his neighbor. But he wanted to justify himself. Now he knew the answer, but he only knew the answer as far as he wanted to live 
the answer. And I think this is something that, that we do. We turn a lot of questions toward Jesus that we already know the answers to, right? We offer a lot of prayers that we know the answers to. Should I, should I buy this? You know, is, is this something... A, the prayer is the justification, right? Like, you know the answer. But you offer that, that prayer. Lord, should, should I say this to my wife? I know the answer. Yes or no, I know the answer, and so do you. Lord, what do I do in this circumstance at work? I've been asked to do this project. How do I respond? We know the answer. We're looking for a justification. There is something about us that wants to do something a way that we know that we shouldn't, but if we can justify it, we'll put our conscience, our conscience at ease. This expert is looking for a way to put his conscience at ease because he knows what it means to love his neighbor. He knows who his neighbor is, but he doesn't live that way. He doesn't extend love towards people that he knows are his neighbor, so he wants to justify himself. We do the same thing. We are in this man's place. All of that brings us this. This is about us. We justify ourselves. We find ourselves in this place where we are explaining away things we know we should or shouldn't do, but we explain them away by justifying ourselves. So, so this is how Jesus responds to him, is with this story. All right. Now, can I just say, as we dive into this story, that this story has nothing to do with helping someone change a flat tire. Okay? I think we hear this story about someone being helped on the side of a road, and there's this assumption that we have that this is about a roadside assistance program. <laughs> it is not. There, is, there are other reasons to and not to, biblically and otherwise, to help someone change a flat tire, but this is not one of them. So the man's predicament of being beaten within an inch of his life, having everything taken from him and left on the side of a wilderness road has nothing analogous to somebody getting a flat tire on Lexington Avenue. They're not near each other. So just this is a different story than that. So don't feel guilty the next time you drive by somebody and, like, and don't help them. This is not the story you feel guilty about. There may be other ones, but, but this isn't the one to blame it on. Uh, no, there's, we're not going to get into the roadside assistance thing. This is something else entirely. What I want to focus on first is the priest in this story. Okay? Because when Jesus told this story, everybody in his audience would have had an entire lifetime's worth of an experience and knowledge about the context that Jesus was talking about. So they would have drawn a whole lot of other meaning from the story that because... We live 2,000 years later in a culture that doesn't look the same. We have to have a little bit of an explanation to, to go back and see it the same way that Jesus is telling it. So the priests that Jesus is referring to were part of the religious leadership system. They're, they're the top scale part of the religious system that Jesus is, is talking to people who they're a part of. So everyone would have had an image that came to their mind when Jesus says a priest. And Jesus doesn't refer to a specific priest. He's using the priest as a general term, talking to this, this elite part of society. These elite people. This, we might say in our culture, this is like a senator. 
This is somebody at the top. This is somebody who has a, a, who has a lot of wealth. Somebody who's received an incredible amount of education. Somebody who has a lot of influence. This is the top elite person that Jesus is referencing here when he says a priest. Now, uh, as he's going along this, there's an inference here that's important too. If you're rich, if you're wealthy, if you're at the top, you don't walk anywhere, right? So there's an inference just by Jesus mentioning that this guy was a priest that he was, he was riding on some beast of burden, be it a horse or a donkey. We don't know. But the, the audience's assumed reaction would be, well, this guy was riding on something. Now, it isn't a stretch to say this. If I say a senator is going from, uh, from Minneapolis to St. Cloud, we don't have to be told that he's going to drive there, right? Like, we just would all assume this. So this is part of the story, that there's an assumption that the priest has some sort of, of horse or something with him. So that gives him a little bit of extra, uh, extra something in the story. Now, what is important about the story as well is the priest got his wealth because he's paid by the temple offerings. He's paid by, this, by the, the religious system, pays him through the offerings that come in through the temple. Now, in order to receive those income, that income, he needs to remain ceremonially pure, which involves staying four cubits away from a dead body. Four cubits, roughly seven feet, give or take. So he has to stay, and not just him, his shadow as well, because <laughs> that. Uh, so he has to remain seven feet away from a dead body. So as this story plays out, and Jesus talks about this priest coming down this road to this place where this man who's beaten within an inch of his life is laying, the priest has to remain seven feet away because there's a chance that if this man is dead, which he can't tell if that's the case or not, if this man's dead and he gets within that seven feet, he loses his income not just for himself, but for his family and all the people that rely on his, his household, all of his, all of his servants and all those people. If he can't receive his income, everyone gets cut off until he can become ceremonially clear again, which involves a red heifer and burning it. and It's a process. <laughs> so he has to remain seven feet. So this is part of the story that his, that the audience that Jesus is talking about would have understood because this man is bound to this system that he relies on for his livelihood and the livelihood of his family as well as he passes as, as this man. So his response to the situation of this man on the road isn't just about his feeling toward the man. The priest's response is also about what does the system that I'm a part of say I can do in this circumstance? So the priest, as he approaches this man, he has a personal response, but there's also this larger pressure around him to respond accordingly to the situation because there are more things at stake than just him going over there. What's at stake here is his income and his family's provision. This is a big deal. So he crosses to the other side of the road to go by because he's not just crossing because of the circumstance, he's crossing because he's being pulled, around, pulled along by the system that he's a part of within it. So, 
so that's that's where he's, he's uh, that's the priest. He's being led by this. Now the Levite, they're a part of this religious system as well. They're a familial part. They're a notch below. Uh, the, the Levites typically had some other sort of job. They would go and help serve at the temple for a part of a part of the year, and then go home and do other things. So the Levite is going along too, and he comes to this place. The Levites ate, uh, aided the priests in fulfilling the, the temple requirements. Now, an important thing, an important note to make on, at this point of the story is that everyone hearing the story would have known the road to Jericho. Now, we've got a picture of the road to Jericho we can throw up. The road to Jericho, this is an old photo of it, The road to Jericho is a 17-mile road that goes from Jerusalem, which is kind of up in the mountains, to Jericho, which is down in a valley. So it's a downhill road for 17 miles that weaves through this wadi. It's a dried valley. Uh, It's the Wadi Kilt uh, is the name of it. Uh, So it winds for 17 miles down. And it is there's ancient stories about this this place being ripe with robbers. Like, they're everywhere. Uh, so this story isn't, isn't all that un, impo- impossible uh, as you look at this. So this is the story, or this is the, the valley. And what's important to recognize about this at this point in the story is that the way that Jesus sets up the story, the audience would have assumed that the Levite knew the priest was ahead of him. There is an understanding that with the way the system works, that the Levite and the priest may have left Jerusalem around the same time, if not at the same time. Uh, And that on an ancient road like this that's going downhill, weaves in and out of the hills and around corners, one, there are obviously robbers on this road. It sets up the story. You would be very aware of who else is on the road as far as you can see at every moment that you can see. Because your safety, your life, may depend on knowing who else is on the road. So there is an understanding within the story that the Levite would have known who else is on. The commentators on this are very clear. The Levite would have been aware that the priest is ahead of him on this road. The Levite would have known that the priest is out there. He would have at different moments seen the Levite turn a corner as he turned a corner or go over the, ed- the edge of a cliff as he went over the edge of a cliff. So, so there's an awareness here that he knows that he's ahead of him on the 17-mile road that ended in Jericho, which is where a number of priests and, and economic elite had uh, second homes and things like that because it was a more of a, a resort city compared to Jerusalem, if I can use that term uh, for it. So you've got this, this going on that, that the Levite knows that the priest is up there ahead of him. Now, as he's doing this, with that in mind, that provides some significant commentary to the story and some, some, some significant inference to what's going to happen as the story plays out. The priest is pulled along past the man on the side of the road by the system that he's a part of. Now, as the Levite comes to this place, to where the man is on the side of the road, he has tension pulling at him as well. Because it's not just about what he does in this circumstance. He knows that the priest already went by this place, and the priest didn't stop. 
The priest is of a higher class than he is. The priest understands the law better than he does. And the priest, walked by one commentator, explains it this way. He explains the, the Levite's response. Uh, and I think we have this on the screens. You can take a look at this. He says, Fear of defilement cannot be his, the Levite's, strongest motive. Fear of the robbers may be. More likely, it is the example of the higher-ranking priest that deters him. Not only can he say, if the priest on ahead did nothing, why should I, a mere Levite, trouble myself? But the Levite, in his turn, may have thought with himself that it could not be incumbent on him to undertake the perilous office, from which the priest had just shirked, uh, shirked duty. It could not be. Else that other would never have omitted it. For him to thrust himself upon it now would be a kind of affront to his superior an implicit charging of him with inhumanity and hardness of heart. So, the Levite, as he comes across this man who's dying on the side of the road, if he responds, he's charging the priest with a hard heart. If he responds to this situation, he's making an accusation against somebody who's higher than him in their social and religious Class, when the priest goes by, the priest is being pulled by a number of factors. When the Levite comes to the circumstance, he's pulled, pulled past as well because the priest is pulling him along, because the momentum of the priest is pulling him, because he's tied, he is hitched to the priest. The priest, more than just figuratively, but literally, is leading the Levite. Let me demonstrate how this would happen. I'm going to have Abraham and Palmer come up here. And they're going to, they're going to show us what this, uh, a little demonstration of what this would look like. I'm going to have Abe put this on. And Palmer, you come over here and you're going to... Oh, we got a knot. We can't have knots and a rope. If you went to the Boundary Waters, you'd know that. <laughs> All right, I'm going to have you guys move over, the, over here. So these guys are, are hitched. They're tethered together. And, uh, and they're just going to walk across the room. Abe, I'm going to ask you to lead because you're a leader. Uh, and Palmer, I'm going to have you follow. So Abe, just, just walk to that other side of the room. Now, Palmer, I have here some chocolate muffins, and I hear that you're a fan of food. It's all yours if you give me five. You can just give me five, and you can have this. It's yours. You just come here, and you can have it. I'm not that far away. All right, there you go. I don't want to step in front. <laughs> that was nice. You like that? All right, you give these guys a hand for doing this. Here you go, Palmer. You could have gotten these outside, too. But So the Levite and the priest are tethered together. They're tied together. So as the priest goes by, the Levite is tied to him. Because if he stops, if he does something, it's an accusation against the priest. The Levite has a decision to make. But that decision isn't as simple as it looks at face value. Because in every decision that we have, similar to the lives that we live, there is more at stake here than it appears at face value. There are subtexts involved. There are other things pulling 
at him other than just the circumstance as it may seem at surface level. So this priest is being pulled along. This priest is being led by the system that he's a part of. His religious obligation, his obligation to his family is what is leading him. This Levite is being led figuratively and literally by the priest. By his following him, there are circumstances involved that are forming his understanding of how to respond to the situation at hand. This is what we all deal with every day. This is who we are. Every decision that we make has a plethora of factors involved, pulling us in different directions, helping us to see how it is that we form the decisions that we make. So we have to ask this question, who am I following? Following? Following. It's important where you put the L. Who am I following? Who is it that you are following? Who in your school, in your workplace, in your family are you following? Who is it that you're trying to become like? Who is it that you report to? What systems are in place that you adhere to in your life? Who and what are you following? And who are you leading in your school, in your workplace, in your family? Who are you leading? Who are the people who are trying to become like you? Who reports to you? What systems do you set in place that others follow? Last week I was able to, not last week, two weeks ago I was able to duck out for a little bit. Oh no, it was, it was last week. I was able to duck out of here and go look in on our kids' church stuff. I don't get an opportunity to do that very much. Holy cow, we have a lot of them in there. <laughs> we, are, we lose track of it in here, but we are ripe with ankle biters. We got them everywhere. There are a lot of parents in here. Parents. As a parent, that might be the most profound leadership that there is. The decisions that you make, the things that you follow, the systems that you're a part of are forming your children. Whether you're intentional about it or not, you are leading your kids and they're following you. And we need to be aware of how we're leading and what the results are of the leadership that we're offering our children. We're going to turn the corner and move toward wrapping up here. To do this, I want to turn to, to John chapter 13. If you want to flip with me, I want to, to share this story and, and give us a, an opportunity to do something here. John 13, I'm going to start with verse 3 and go through 14. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up after the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, dying, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, You do not realize what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you will have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. 
Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I have... Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Jesus, aware, this is important, Jesus, aware that he had power over heaven and earth, that he was leading everything, that God had turned over leadership of the entire universe to Jesus. Jesus, aware of that, strips to his skivvies, wraps a towel around himself, and washes the feet of teenage boys. That's what his disciples were. They're teenage boys, maybe 20. Have you seen teenage boys' feet? (laughs) Jesus, leading the entire universe, washes teenage boys' feet. This is biblical leadership personified. This leadership that we're called by Jesus to embody. This is how we're to lead at school, to lead at work, to lead in our homes. Leadership as Jesus leads is a step away from a position of control and into a position of service. Biblical leadership means to fully embrace humility as you love your neighbor. You could say it this way. Leading biblically is odd-handed. Leading biblically is odd-handed. On the bottom of your talk sheets, uh, there's a, a dotted line and an open space at the bottom. By the way, I totally ripped off this idea from another pastor. So, so it's his if you've ever seen or heard it before. I give full credit. Somebody else's idea. He probably ripped it off from somewhere else too. Anyway... All the best ideas are stolen. Uh, At the bottom of the sheet, take your odd hand, whichever hand you don't normally write with. So if you're right-handed, use your left hand. If you're left-handed, use your right hand. And I want you to write at the bottom of the sheet, lead humbly. With your off hand, write, lead humbly. I hear chuckling. That's good. It's not easy, is it? Especially when you don't have anything to write on. Lead humbly. When you're done with that, fold it on that dotted line, tear that piece of the talk sheet off. When you've done that, tear it off. What I'm going to have you do is you're going to be exchanging your sheets. I'm going to present a scenario to you. If this has ever been you, what I want you to do is stand up with your sheet, look at somebody else who's standing up as well, look them in the eye and say, I've been there, and exchange sheets with them. So, if you've got it written down, if you've got it torn off, what I want you to do is stand up. If you have ever been embarrassed by your parents, stand up, find another person who's standing, look them in the eye and say, I have been there. All right? 
since almost everyone is standing. If you've ever been, if you've ever been rejected romantically, if you've ever been dumped, if you've ever been turned down, look somebody else. If you if not, sit down and there, there's no one. I'm not participating. I've been there. All right. If you've ever been betrayed by a friend, stand up, look at somebody, change pieces of paper, say, I've been there. If you've ever been embarrassed by a teacher, if you've ever been embarrassed by a teacher, stand up, look somebody in the eye, change, I've been there. Final one, if you've ever wished there was an unsend button on your email, stand up, look somebody in the eye, I've been there. All right, you can have a seat. What I want you to do with those slips of paper that probably aren't your own anymore, but it probably still has the same style handwriting on it, is take that home with you. Put that wherever it is that you keep your towel. Put it where you put your towel as a reminder that that's what Jesus calls us to. Jesus wrapped a towel around himself. We're called to embody that type of leadership and to follow that type of leadership. Leadership that leads humbly. Biblical leadership, I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. They're going to close this with a song. Biblical leadership isn't power to form people's actions, but a willingness to serve people out of love. That's what we're called to. That's what it means to live the life of eternity as the, as the expert in the law set out to trap Jesus. He asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's what Jesus got to in this story, is that it is to love people humbly. And that's what he did when he wrapped that towel around himself. Lord, will you guys stand with me as I pray? Lord, we pray that we would lead humbly, that we would follow humble leaders. Lord, help us to, uh, to worship you and to sing your praises in this time. In your name.